Lent, as you know, provides us with an opportunity to be reminded of the basic stuff, the meat and potatoes that make up Christian discipleship. And so it's a time to refocus or to readjust or to realign ourselves to what is really the radical nature of our calling, of the Christian vocation, the Christian ethic to be manifested and fleshed out in the world. And so it should be, under the Spirit's blessing, of course, a time for renewed clarity. Right? Right? Should things, as they often do, become dull? Right? Should our souls become cloudy? Should we not see clearly? Should things be obscured? And so Lent gives us this opportunity for some bracing, health-giving, cleansing of our souls. It is a time to recalibrate. Recalibrate in the way of Christian living. Or another way to put it would be to say, it's a time to ask ourselves, have we got the order and proportion of things right? Because this is the time to get the order and proportion right. And the way of Christian living, the way of Christian life, Christian being, Christian existence in the world is nothing other than the way of the cross. But we are just naturally bent away from this, and we tend to forget it. The demanding yet liberating way of the imitation of Jesus Christ. This is what Lent is useful to remind us of. Again, not a special holy time, an extraordinary discipline or something like that. Or even of special acts of self-denial, which are good. Those are honorable, I suppose, and, and they can be helpful. But the main thing to get here is that this is a yearly witness, right? a yearly witness to what has always been true or what at least should always be true of us. And in this case, what should always be true is perpetual, continual repentance. Perpetual, continual repentance. Repentance is the root action, along with faith, But repentance is the root action of Christian existence. And often outside of Lent, we forget these things. Like repentance is the root action of Christian existence. And as such, it's a permanent feature, daily, hourly feature of our pilgrimage toward the glory and the image of Jesus Christ. There can be no progress or no fruitfulness, no sweetness, no joy apart from it. Here's Calvin. He says, Accordingly, we must strive toward repentance itself. In other words, let me just stop. In other words, you're not just going to naturally start repenting. Repenting is not like breathing. You're going to have to strive for it. You're going to have to enact it. So Calvin says, Accordingly, we must strive toward repentance itself, devote ourselves to it throughout life, and pursue it, To the very end, if we would abide in Christ. Remarkable. And again, he says, we are not to stick fast in this mire and progress no further. Isn't that the temptation? If you've been in Christ for a while, you stick fast in the mire. You're like, this is a pretty good spot in the mire. Things look pretty good from here. I'm comfortable in the mire. It's not that much mire. Calvin says, we are not to stick fast in this mire and progress no further. 
But rather than we are to hasten to God and yearn for him in order that, having been engrafted into the life and death of Christ, we may give attention to continual repentance. This is the root action. There is no getting further into the mire without giving attention to and striving after continual repentance. And Lent is a good reminder of that. In one sense, it's odd, right? Like, are we not fully forgiven? Are we not clothed in the righteousness of Christ? Are we not justified? Are we not seated with Christ in the heavenly places? What's this continual repentance you're speaking about? And Lent is a reminder, all those things are true in an already way and not in the full not yet way. Lent is is a way of screaming at us, hey, there's a lot of not yet hanging out there that you haven't yet arrived at, or you've arrived at only by faith. Calvin knew this. He understood that we're fully justified, that we're fully clothed in the righteousness of Christ, that we're fully forgiven. And yet he is the theologian of perpetual repentance. Read his little booklet, Calvin's golden booklet of the Christian life. It's like 35 pages. You can read it in in a couple of hours. It's all about this. So continual repentance is what the cross-shaped life looks at, right? Continual repentance. And we're so prone to forget this, that we need the prod of Lent to remind us, hey, this is the normal state of affairs. This is what Christian, the walk with Jesus Christ looks like. And so this year, Lord willing, we're going to take a look on the Wednesdays of Lent, at least four of them. I'll be out the next two. Justin will will have this service. But on the four that I'm here, we're going to be looking at a couple of the paragraphs and the proof text, the scripture text that support uh, these paragraphs in Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 15. We'll look at a couple of other texts as well. The, The 15th chapter of the Confession of Faith is entitled, Of Repentance Unto Life. I mean, think about that. The Reformed churches have a whole chapter in our confessions on repentance. That's pretty important. And so this evening, we're going to look at the first short paragraph, which says this. Repentance unto life is an evangelical grace. The doctrine whereof is to be preached by every minister of the gospel, as well as that of faith in Christ. So repentance is an evangelical grace. Every minister should preach it. So I'm going to make two points, an evangelical grace and proclaiming repentance. So first, an evangelical grace. In this context, the word evangelical means gospel. So repentance then is a gospel grace. So this means we have to ask, what then? What then is the gospel? You'd think this would be easy. Right? But the church, we've learned, can't seem to distinguish between the gospel and whatever the favorite hot thing of the moment happens to be. Or we can't distinguish between what the gospel is and what might be a downstream implication of the gospel. Now, the gospel has implications, but the implications are not the gospel. So again, it's useful to think of the gospel itself and its unadorned simplicity in its centrality, that needs to always be recovered for us. And Paul tells us 
in 1 Corinthians 15 just what it is. He says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Notice that, right? The gospel is something you've received from heaven. It's, it's the thing by which you stand in Christ in this hour. And it's the thing by which you are being saved. We, we think it's all these other things. It is always the gospel all the way down all the time. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. The gospel is the gospel that the Corinthians received. It's the gospel in which they stand. And it's the gospel by which they are being saved. If you hold fast to this word that I preach to you, Paul says. Okay, so what is it? Well, he says, next verse, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Here's the gospel. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's it. That's the gospel. You might notice what's not included in the gospel. Namely, virtually everything we always talk about. That's not the gospel. Paul describes the gospel this way, and he does the same thing in Romans 1. In Romans 1, he says, I'm called to be an apostle. I'm set apart for the gospel, which he promised beforehand in the prophets, in the, in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son. The gospel concerns the promised Messiah. Who, Paul says, was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God with power through the Holy Spirit by means of the resurrection from the dead. So again, what's he saying? The promised Son who came in the flesh, who was raised in the power of the Spirit. That's the gospel. So when we speak of repentance, when we call it an evangelical grace, a gospel grace, The first thing we are saying is that repentance comes through this gospel of Christ crucified for you, buried, and raised for your sake. It comes through that gospel. The gospel creates repentance. I mean, that's simple enough. The gospel creates repentance and then is responded to and lived out in repentance. Not just at the beginning, but all the way through to the end of the Christian life. So to call repentance an evangelical grace is to say, among other things, repentance is in no way a work. It is in no way a work. It is no way like a prelude to faith. Right? We'll see this, Lord willing, on a subsequent Wednesday night, but we do have this tendency to think, I don't know if I repented good enough and if my repentance is meeting the level of repentance that I think is necessary here. You know what I mean? That was a pretty serious sin, so maybe I should put a couple more minutes of repentance in. Oh, that was really good repentance that I did just there. God's got to be happy with that repentance. You know what that is, right? That, that's what we do, right? That means we think repentance is a work. That means we haven't grasped that repentance itself is an evangelical grace. It's not a work. It's the very gift of the gospel which calls for repentance. And more to the point, right? If it's a gift of the gospel, that means it's a gift of the God of the gospel. 
So the texts that are cited in our confession bear this out. The Old Testament passage, which I read from Zechariah, is one of those texts. And there we read of the time of the coming of the Messiah. It says this. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. So the spirit of grace, the spirit of supplication, which is a spirit of prayer and intercession, right? The spirit of great and bitter mourning, which looks to the crucified Christ and mourns. This spirit of mourning is poured out. It's given from above. In short, God grants this repentance. There's no getting around this, beloved. Repentance entails mourning, tears, grief, and weeping. And if you look at the New Testament lesson, another text that is cited in the confession here from Acts 11. You have Peter's audience, right? They hear the story that Peter tells of, I went to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, I went to Cornelius' house. And his audience says, the text tells us, they glorified God when Peter reports back to them. And they said, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. I want you to notice the language of the apostolic church here. Repentance that leads to life. Do you know that that is identical to the chapter title of our confession? Chapter 15 in the Westminster Confession is not simply on repentance. It's of repentance unto life. Of repentance unto life. They're actually borrowing the language from Acts chapter 11. Repentance is life-giving. The language of 2 Corinthians 7 says it's godly sorrow or repentance that leads to salvation without regret. It's worldly grief. But you're going to have one or the other, right? You're going to have repentance in your life or you're going to carry around guilt and grief. Worldly grief, Paul tells us, leads to death. But repentance leads to life without regret. It's a glorious thing, repentance. Glorious It's no wonder, right, that we're told by Jesus himself that there's more joy in heaven, more joy in heaven over one sinner repenting than over 99 who need no repentance. So this is the way of the Christian life. It's also, by the way, the way of pleasing God, the way of making heaven glad. But we resist it, right, because we're self-righteous and we don't want to admit we need repentance, But it's the most beautiful thing we can do. Repentance is not a drab, moralistic duty. It is a joy because it opens up for us this fountain of new spiritual life. Repentance unto life. Notice as well the logic of the the early, the early Christians. They get Peter's report and they think, If the Gentiles have repented, it's because God granted it to them. God has granted repentance also to the Gentiles, just like God granted repentance to us. In all of these cases, right? All of these cases, repentance is a gift. Paul tells us the same thing in 2 Timothy 2. He says this, 
We should correct opponents with gentleness that God might perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Right? I think often we don't correct people with gentleness because we forgot that God's the grantor of repentance. We think that our arguments are the grantor of repentance or that we're the grantors of repentance, right? We can afford to be gentle because repentance is a gift. God gives it. It's a grace. What does Paul say in Romans 2? It is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's a remarkable text, really, when you think about it. You would think... Well, that's, that sounds indulgent, God. You can't be kind to these sinners and gentle with them. I mean, there needs to be some threats. There needs to be some scolding, some finger pointing. The, repent, the kindness of God is what led you to repentance and me to repentance. And so when we deal with opponents, we can be gentle with them. Through the Spirit sent by the exalted Christ, repentance is given. It's frustrating to us because we, we feel like we can maybe conjole God into granting repentance in this case or help him out. But it's quite liberating to realize this is the Lord's job. He gives repentance. Repentance is an evangelical grace. That's, that's repentance as an evangelical grace. The second point I want to look at in this first short paragraph is proclaiming repentance. And here... We're focusing on these words. The doctrine of repentance is to be preached by every minister of the gospel, as well as that of faith in Christ. So, notice a couple things here. Repentance is not just a spiritual reality, something essential, something we do underneath God's grace, but repentance is a doctrine. We have a doctrine. We have a public official teaching on repentance. Right? That means we need to think a little bit about it, to grasp the teaching, to grasp the doctrine with clarity or accuracy because we're going to proclaim it. And thankfully, of course, we have the confession. We have this chapter to guide us. That's why we have confessions. What is our doctrine of repentance in its fullness? If someone asks you that, you can say this. It's Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 15. That's what it is. That's why we have confessions. Because, right, we don't want to take anything for granted here. Even on a thing as apparently simple as repentance, people, churches, traditions differ, right? And sometimes there's error and distortion that can creep into our teaching. So scripture teaches and we confess a doctrine of repentance, right? There have been many in the history of the church who, who saw repentance as a kind of work, but that was done before faith. And that's why the, the Westminster, the theologians and pastors who crafted the confession are being very careful here. Now, it's true, of course, all Christians, not just those who are ministers, can share the gospel and proclaim the need for repentance. The emphasis here is on the public preaching by a lawfully ordained minister. Every minister of the gospel, the confession says, has to proclaim the doctrine of repentance along with faith. In the thought of the confession, the primary means for the gospel's promulgation is the public preaching. It's not the only means, but it is the central means. And so ministers of the gospel have to preach repentance. If a minister is not calling his people and himself to repentance under the word, something's missing. You can't excise this 
for some lighter version or more cheerful or more user-friendly version of Christianity because this is the root action of Christian existence in the world. Along with faith. But we'll bracket out. Faith and repentance always go together. Where you have faith, you'll have repentance. Where you have true repentance, you'll have faith. But we'll bracket that aside for now and look and focus on repentance. So if this is supposed to be preached, we would expect to see a heavy accent on it in the New Testament preaching. And in fact, we do. Right? We see it from the very beginning. In Mark's gospel, Mark calls this the beginning of the gospel, chapter 1 of Mark. You have John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness. And the first thing he says is, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he goes around proclaiming a baptism of repentance. And then Jesus begins and stamps his whole ministry with the exact same message. Right? This is the banner over our Lord's preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We heard in the gospel lesson from Luke 24, the risen Christ commissions the church to do what he and John the Baptist have done. Right? It is written that the Christ should suffer and be raised on the third day and that repentance and the forgiveness of sins shall be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. John the Baptist's preaching begins with repentance. Our Lord's preaching begins with repentance. The apostolic church, their preaching begins with repentance. And we see this right on the day of Pentecost. Peter stands up in Acts chapter 2 and says, repent. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We find Paul, the Apostle Paul in Acts 20, testifying, he says, of of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. There you can see Paul links faith and repentance together. So it's true, we're not all preachers, but we are all witnesses. You are all witnesses. And we have to speak forth as God to ourselves and to others as God grants opportunity. We must speak of repentance unto life. A gospel grace. It's a gift of the God who does not desire the death of a sinner. But rather that they repent, turn from their ways, and live. For repentance is unto life. And Lent is a wholesome reminder that this gift of the gospel becomes in Christ a duty. Because again, the gospel, like repentance, is not just for the beginning of the Christian life. The gospel's for the middle, the end, every day. This is really where we get derailed in the Christian life, I think. We really, I mean, no one will say it out loud, but we behave like the gospel was for the beginning, right? And now the gospel plus my law keeping is for the middle, But it is always the gospel at every point. And this is what Calvin means. We are commanded to repent and thus continual repentance. Through continual repentance, we live out this evangelical grace. And that brings glory to God who loves sinners. Again, there's, there's something in the culture with the word repent, right? It's associated with fire and brimstone preachers. 
It's associated with a kind of fundamentalist meanness, perhaps. It has all of these associations hovering around it. Well, we, we need to get rid of those, right? We need, to, we need to reclaim the word in its biblical clarity, in its sparkling fullness, right? God commands everyone to repent because he loves sinners. And he wants to grant them repentance unto life. And as he grants you repentance unto life, he grants you perpetual repentance. So let us pray that God would quicken us, quicken us in this evangelical grace during this season. Amen.